believed for years that was just completely weird or wrong or superstitious. And, and you know, sometimes our response to that is, oh man, I had no idea and we change. And sometimes our response is, it's, it's only uh, weird if it doesn't work, right? I mean, when you're watching a baseball game and your team is winning, you don't change what you've been doing. So if you've been snapping your fingers, you have to keep snapping your fingers. If you've been sitting, you can't get up. You know, it, those kinds of things, it, it makes sense because it works when, when you do that. Or somebody comes up to you and maybe, maybe you've been saying something wrong your whole, whole life and you had no idea. Um, maybe you've done this like me as a kid for most of my childhood into my teenage years. I always said Reese's Pieces. Is anybody else, is that a thing? Like I, I really like those. I like Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. But did, did you know like it's actually pronounced Reese's Pieces with the emphasis on the wrong syllable there, but you, you get the idea. Like some of you, maybe you just learned that for the first time ever. I know for me, it was kind of like, it was, it was a very difficult thing for me to have to relearn and change in my life. And, and so as we jump into the letter of Romans, like Adria mentioned, the reason that we're doing this and the reason that Romans is so packed full of so many things and Paul writes this letter is because he's defining and he's outlining what it looks like for our lives to be changed by the gospel of Jesus. And so why do we believe what we believe? Why do we do what we do? Paul, Paul writes about all of these things. It's not exhaustive by any stretch of the imagination, but he talks about all of these things in the letter of Romans. And so over the next few weeks, we're gonna be looking at that and talking about what it looks like for our lives to be changed and for us to apply Jesus to our lives. Now, as Paul writes the letter to Romans, it's written to the church in Rome made up of Christians, but, but not, just, uh, not just Christians the way that we would think of ourselves today. In fact, there was a considerable difference between two major groups. And one uh, were the Jewish Christians, and these were people who had grown up in the Jewish faith and tradition, who had converted to believers in Jesus. And they were also, the next group was the group of Gentile Christians, which just simply means anyone who's not Jewish. And they were there, and their background was very different. Their faith tradition that they came out of was, was very different from, uh, from those who were Jews at the time. They came out of a pagan faith tradition. And so the things that had happened in their lives before they knew Jesus were very different, and the way that they were approaching and thinking about Jesus was different. Um, you, you might not be aware, for example, uh, for example, Velocity's background, because we're an independent, non-denominational denomination, you know, church, and we don't really make a big deal about our affiliations and all that kind of stuff as an autonomous, autonomous congregation. But for those of you who have been here for, for a while, and some of you have come out of another denomination and come to Velocity, you know that we have uh, partnerships and places and, and organizations and people that we're partnered with because we have a common faith tradition. And that kind of informs how we go about things and why we do the things that we do. For example, we've talked about Waypoint Church Partners here every once in a while. It's the organization that planted Velocity, started us a little over 13 years ago. And we still partner with them and always have since the beginning to help plant other new churches. We talked about Mid-Atlantic Christian University earlier this year. We ordained Dominic, and some of you remember that and know him. And actually, Dominic and I both went to the same uh, university. We have a 
couple other people here at a church that went there as well. And it comes from a same common uh, background and faith tradition. Some of you have helped serve with Christian Student Fellowship down at VCU. Uh, the two campus ministers that are on staff there, Aaron and Christina, they're members here at Velocity. Christina actually gives us uh, very part-time hours here, helping us out on staff as well. And so we've partnered with those things. And so we know that those are connections are, are there. And we mention, I mentioned all this to say that there's a shared commonality behind all that, that even as a non-denominator, which just means like we don't have regional state, national, global uh, authorities that are over our congregation. We have historical ties and affiliations based on our faith tradition. And it's based on the theology and doctrine that's born out of scripture that we share in common with these sister churches and organizations across the globe. And the name of that faith tradition is the Restoration Movement, if you're, if you're curious about that. Now, it's not going to turn into history class, but the reason why I'm mentioning, mentioning this is throughout church history, there have been periods of resets, clarification, and corrections that have taken place as a response to the way that people make things messy. The church for example, and not just the little C church and just here at Velocity, but the church, the big C church, is a messy place because it's made up of us. And, and that's not going to change, but the reason that the church has still continued to exist, I believe, is because God established it. Jesus started the church and the Holy Spirit is what helps to keep the church alive and going despite of us. And after all, there are no perfect people allowed even here, right? But we also don't have to limit our lives to the mess. Uh, so, so if you look at the pattern of the church, for example, you can see and understand the reason and why the Catholic church, for example, came to be what it was. And then you continue to fall, uh, follow along in church history and you see why the Reformation came along. And maybe these are, maybe these are some terms that you're not familiar with, but that's okay. Uh, st stick with me. And then further along in that, the restoration movement, which is a smaller movement, came along and existed as well as a response to some of the things that were going on. And the reason behind all of those things was for unity. The, the desire, at least, is to bring people together on a common faith rested on Scripture. And that's what's happening with Paul as he is writing to the Roman church. Unfortunately, the big pattern of church and church history are church splits. Uh, maybe you've been a part of one of those. Anybody? Well, maybe that's more rhetorical. We, uh, we don't want to talk about those things because those things are very painful. When you have two different groups that come from very different backgrounds or think very differently about the same thing, and they just can't imagine how the other group thinks the way that they do about that issue, and eventually they separate and, and, move, and move apart. Uh, does anybody remember the worship wars of the 1990s? Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? This is when the evil uh, that is uh, the drums, you know, came to be existence and the syncopation of sinful syncopation was being considered to introduce into the worship service or that a guitar would be used other than just a piano or organ, those kinds of things. I mean, we can laugh about this. I can't imagine a church that would use those kinds of things, right? Um, we, can, we can kind of chuckle a little bit about those things now, but those were very painful times for very many people. 
And and in fact, there's still people who feel that strongly about those kinds of things, that this this is not connected to the faith that I knew, or this is not connected to the belief in God that I had in my head and how how I was raised to believe, what I was taught uh, to, to be there. And there's some of that going on in the church with, with, in the church at Rome. These, these issues were painful and they're impassioned and there's a crisis of belief represented there. And what Paul does is he begins this, this letter in chapter one of, of Romans, and we're gonna start in chapter uh, one of Romans if you wanna turn your Bible there, is he identifies exactly what our issue is when it comes to these problems that we have that threaten to separate us. And that's this. The problem is this is when we have a blank before our identifier as Christ followers. Is when we say, I'm a blank Christian. Because anything before that term, anything before that, that claim of Jesus is either marketing or it's what separates us from everyone else who in a believer. In, in an idealistic world, they'll know we're Christians by our love, unified big C church world, we should just be able to say, I'm a Christian, and we know what that means because we know who Jesus is. And we know following him is, is related to us through the Bible, which, by the way, we just finished a series on reading the Bible. I hope you're continuing to do that, and Romans would be a great thing uh, to start to read uh, through the series. But, but again, we're messier than that. Here, here's an example. One of the founders of the Restoration Movement uh, found himself preaching in a church, and this is the name of the church, that he was preaching out, it, it is the old light, anti-burger, seceder, Presbyterian church. And that was, in the, can you imagine getting a URL for that? <laughs> These days, it's like, what's the church website? It's old light, anti-burger, anti-seceder, Presbyterian church. And well, I said anti-seceder, he was a seceder, but, but you, uh, you could reverse those. So the other church on the other corner would be the new light, burger, anti-seceder, Presbyterian church. And they shared a common patriotism and background until they started disagreeing on things. Some of that was political, some of that was, was spiritual, some of it was social. Like, could you imagine if we were like velocity, no pews, drums, you, you know, and just they added all those things at church, you know, to, to the end of it. And the problem is all of those terms, except for the word church, represented a church split. And so all of a sudden there's this recognition that, wait, wait a second, why are, we so, why are we so focused in on what divides us rather than recognizing that we have a common faith and that maybe despite the fact that we disagree about some things, there's a correction that needs to be made that we should be able to find unity in the faith and practice of the church because Jesus said they'll know we're Christians by our love, by how we're connected to each other. And that scripture can be a guide for us in how we live that faith out, rather than church tradition, for example, or our opinions. And this is the crucial moment in which Paul writes to the church at Rome. The drama of these two groups clashing with eventually, you could see the threat of a splinter, uh, a separation from each other, the Jews on one side and the Gentiles on the other. And so Paul reaches out to remind them of who they are and whose they are through the gospel that saved them. So I want to read from Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 14. Paul says, I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. 
That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This letter to Romans is essentially Paul's explanation of the gospel to them. And he sets this as the foundation for their belief, their faith, and practice, what they should be unified on, and how they move forward together as followers of Jesus. And he begins with the problem that the Jewish and Gentile Christians have that's causing the division among them. And one of the things that made this division so much worse is in, um, in Claudius 25, this is from the Roman historian Suetonius, we, we know that um, through history that during this time period, the Jews were actually removed from Rome for several years before they were allowed back in the city. Uh, Suetonius refers to this expulsion of Jews by Claudius and states this. He says, since the Jews, he writes in Claudius 25, since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he expelled them from Rome. And it's an interesting name there that he uses as he spells out Crestus. Uh, it's, uh, there's actually a lot of evidence that we won't go into today that he's talking, in fact, about Jesus Christ. And it's not difficult to imagine that as you have uh, Jews deciding whether or not they're going to change their beliefs and follow Jesus, that it turned the Jewish faith on its head. And as the discussion about his ministry and resurrection, how that should change their beliefs created enough turmoil uh, that would have been seen as a political threat. Claudius got rid of him and said, hey, you guys got to leave. So in the meantime, the Gentiles who were still there, was like, well, we're still going to have church. We're still going to meet. And then several years later, as they come back into the city, they find out, hey, we've kind of taken some different paths in how we worship God. The Jewish Christians were of the opinion that because Jesus came out of their spiritual heritage, that the Gentiles should not only just follow Jesus, but in addition, keep Jewish law. Now, I don't know about you, but on top of like striving to be more like Jesus in my life, I don't know that I'm ready to add kosher law on top of that. And let me share with you why I think that's significant. It's all about food. <clears throat> no shrimp, no crab, no oysters, no lobster, no bacon, right, right? No pulled pork or barbecue. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's, can we just stop and have a moment of silence for that? <clears throat> no rare steak, because you can't have can't have blood in the meat, all right? Some, some of you need to repent, by the way. You eat your steak well done. Uh, we'll talk about that after the service if, if you want. And that's just, the, that's just the food. But there's to be so many other things that would impact our life. Now, I joke about that, and hopefully we all feel like that would be a joke because, I, uh, because of who I believe Jesus is and what he's done for me. I would like to think I would absolutely make those changes in my life, right? If, if God told me no more bacon because of what Jesus has done for you on the cross and through the resurrection, all right, no more bacon. Like that's definitely more important and more significant than my ability to have bacon anymore. What about more significant and more difficult issues? What about the things that like when our decision to follow Jesus, it makes us conspicuous in our lives and in society? What about when it hurts our relationships or it changes how someone feels about us 
or how they view us? What about those things? What if we're categorized in uncomfortable ways? Because we've all got something at stake. We've all got something to lose, to give up when it comes to accepting who Jesus is as our Lord and Savior. By exchanging our lives for the salvation Jesus brings to the world by its very nature, like there's not enough room for everything else that we bring along with us in our life. But the response of sinners that are saved by grace is gratefulness to the point of faithfulness. And Paul's statement that he's not ashamed of the gospel and that he's starting with this foundation of Jesus is telling in this regard. I mean, Paul is a former Pharisee of Pharisees. He, he's, he's the one who, when it comes to following the Jewish law and faith and tradition, he is a leader in this. He's teaching other people how to do this. And he's one of the best. He's one of the most knowledgeable. If anyone was going to get a gold star as a follower of God in the Old Testament law, it was going to be Paul. And he knew what it meant to give up everything that he thought he was supposed to be and go all in with Jesus. Those who are the most successful in their chosen field devote themselves in such a way that we would say, man, that's weird. That person sticks out. They, they have some superstitious things that they do, like CEOs who wear the same thing all the time. Like you look in their closet and they've only got one kind of shirt, one kind of pants. And yet people, you know, were amazed and inspired by those kinds of people. The dedication that they have, that athletes have to what they do, but we're rarely willing to go through the links to achieve those things ourselves. Earlier I mentioned Suetonius, the Roman historian. He writes more about Christianity later when he talks about what Nero did with Christians as a response to their faith. And he calls the faith a class of men given to a new and mischievous superstition. The way that Christians were viewed by the society at the time was not pleasant, especially with the things that Nero did, persecuting them and torturing them and killing them. Um, they believed that Christians at the time were pagans because they only believed in one God instead of the pantheon. And as Christianity began to spread, it became singled out as an example of socio-political undesirability. Like this is the class of people you don't wanna be and yet the thing that got the early church through it all was faithfulness over and above anything else that was not as important, which is to say everything. And Paul knew that this was going to be the case, that if they let their differences then divide them over the things that didn't matter, that they were never going to survive. And the church is harmed by it. There is no fill in the blank before Jesus because the fill in the blank is where we get into trouble. We get into trouble when we place creation ahead of creator. And that's what we do when we allow things that are not from God, that are not from Jesus, opinions, uh, viewpoints, things that we allow to kind of creep into our, our, our beliefs and our traditions and how we think about God that don't come from him. But that's where we get into trouble. Paul doesn't say get in trouble. That sounds just a little bit better. He uses words like godlessness and wickedness. <laughs> That's what we get ourselves into when we observe the awesome splendor of the world that he's created and fail to give him the credit. So Paul uses some very difficult language to describe what this looks like in Romans chapter one. And so I wanna prepare you for that as he writes this. <clears throat> but don't forget, Romans chapter two is coming as well. 
He writes this, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Let me, let me just pause there for a second. Like many of us could go home and not see idols, you know, in, in our homes that we would say, oh, this is made, this is the turtle that I worship e- each morning in addition to God. Um, but I would venture to say we've got plenty of things that we give our time, money, energy, and space to um, emotional uh, connection with uh, that, are, that are idols in our lives. So we can relate to this. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts, for example, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. He keeps going and the language becomes even more difficult for us to hear and more controversial and more painful as Paul is reminding his readers what they've come from in their life. Verse 26, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men were also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed for lust with one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. He keeps going. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. Wait a second. This This just sounds like it's including a lot of people here. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. And one of the big difficult things about the church here is that we have two different groups looking at each other and thinking, man, the background that I have looks a whole lot better than the background that you have. And it was creating problems for them. And if Paul has stopped just there, we'd be left with heavy hearts, but he continues on and reminds the congregation why they can be unified. It's because we've all been there and we've all done that. Romans chapter two, verse one, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you pass, you judge another, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Down to verse four. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? See, the thing that unifies us, the thing that brings us together is not having the right background and not having the correct opinions and not earning God's favor by what we think we ought to be doing. We're unified by our common need for a savior that we've all got our own baggage, our own brokenness and our sin, our own mental and physical anguish, but these things don't need to define us when we define us when we stand before Jesus. Only Jesus should define us. The question that reveals our hearts in this matter is asking ourselves to, to who or what are we most attracted? Am I more attracted to the righteousness or glory or holiness of God or attracted to the fill in the blank thing that causes me to miss the mark? We all have that thing. I mean, I've, I've got things. I, I don't know about you, mine is plural. 
And this led to the disconnect in thinking for these brothers and sisters in Christ in Rome. They thought holding on to outmoded forms of religious law keeping was the answer when it was really about their hearts. That our actions, the things that we hold on to, the reason why we repent for our sin is all about our hearts and what God does to them through Jesus. The choice then is whether or not we're more attracted to creation or to creator. That's always going to be the choice that we make. It's really no contest and yet can be the hardest choice we make, the kind that's prone to create division in our hearts and division in relationships and other areas of our lives, to choose God over everything. But hear me, that kind of division is the good kind because that's dividing ourselves from the things that keep us separate from him. Romans chapter 2, verse 7. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. The commitment then to being fully invested in our creator allows us to be unified on that which is whole and unchanging. See, if it's unity based on, on me and what I think and what's going on in my life, my, my life changes. Things happen that, that are different, but God doesn't change. He remains the same. When our thoughts and actions and intentions flow through the cross and the empty tomb, the obstacles in our way that vie for our attentions and vie for our affections are removed and our hearts are aligned to connect with the one who made us and fights for us. It's the very thing that the gospel confronts in our lives. It's the question, will we serve the creator or will we serve creation? The answer to this question in our lives signifies what our unity will rest on and it begins with the affection of our hearts. And here's how Paul shares what it looks like to have our hearts aligned with God. Romans 2, 28 and 29. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is a circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. And if I, if I could have you like highlight and circle and make marks in your Bible to highlight something, it would be that last sentence in, the, in that verse. Such a person's praise is not from other people, from God, and here's why. We've got to look inward and ask ourselves, who do we want to hear praise from in our life? Who do we want to accept us? Who do we want to hear well done from? Who, who do we care? <laughs> Whose opinion do we care about and how we live out our faith? Especially in times when people look at us weird and they think, you're doing what on Sunday morning? Like, why would you set your alarm on a Sunday morning? Like, that's, that's a great time to sleep in. I'm not trying to give you ideas or anything, but, you know, get around the golf in, something. Like, there are things that you could do with that extra time because you know you got to go back to work Monday. Like, why would you do this in your life? Whose attention are you seeking right now? Even in this moment right now, it's all about him. It's not about someone else. It's not about a relationship in your life. It's not about you. See, God's already ready to say, well done, good and faithful servant for you and for me. That's what he does through Jesus. He's already willing to give us 
the praise that we so desperately need in our lives to have our hearts aligned with him and reconnected and redeemed in such a way that nothing else in this world can do. There is no blank before Jesus that's going to make anything better in our lives. It's him first and him everything or, or nothing else. It just doesn't work outside of that. And we know that our hearts are guided by our creator when we seek his praise over the praise of his creation. And that's how the book of Romans starts. That's how the letter begins. As Paul sets this foundation for how you and I are meant to approach our faith and apply it to every area of our life. Let's pray together as we prepare to take communion. God, I thank you for... Um, even though the words from Paul are, are, are difficult throughout this, this whole letter that he talks about things that are so technical when it comes to our theology and our belief and our doctrine, but, but God, that all those, all those things that come out come from a place of wanting to put you first, uh, to see Jesus in, in such a way that everything else in our life is filtered through him, not the other way around. And God, we ask that you give us um, the strength and courage of understanding to pursue what you've called us to. That, that sometimes the opinions that we have that keep us separate from, from another person really don't matter nearly as much as we've made them out to be. And so we ask that you help us through your Holy Spirit to put you first in what we do and what we think and what we say and what we believe. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.